Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Climate change is a topic, Tyler, that you and I seek to track and discuss on this podcast. And we are going to devote an episode today to a very important long-term implication of climate change that could cause, according to the Science Daily article that came out on the subject, that climate change could cause a disaster in the world's oceans because deep overturning circulation currents could collapse with strong warming. In other words, worst case scenario. And Tyler, this is a, this is a technical subject that deals with the uh, world ocean currents and and uh, very big earth systems. Uh, it's very technical, but uh, I think we're going to take a shot at trying to help our listeners out there understand one of the often overlooked implications of climate change, and that is the impact on deep ocean currents. Peter, I believe it was you uh, who coined the expression, if you want to understand climate change, don't look to the air, look to the water, look to the oceans, because there you can observe it more uh, readily. And I've, we've all known, uh, it's, it's common nomenclature, it's, it's a common talking point uh, among the folks at NOAA, among climate scientists, that the oceans are an immensely important part of our planet's uh, thermal regulation. It's part of the carbon cycle. And uh, yet the oceans are a complex beast, Peter. Hard to wrap the mind around. There's a lot going on. The currents are swirling around. You've got hot water. You've got cool water. You've got deep water. You've got surface water. And it's all interchanging together, ladies and gentlemen. It is going to be a swirling derby. And so we need some experts to help us understand what the hell is going on in there. And... Turns out we've got two amazing guests to talk about this great climate change-oriented paper that was recently run on Coastal News Today. That's right. Uh, joining us from the University of California, Irvine, are two research uh, experts, research scientists, uh, Dr. Uh, Professor Keith Moore and his PhD candidate, uh, E. Liao, who are in the Department of Earth System Science at uh, UC Irvine and recently completed a significant investigation using Earth system models about the potential implications of climate change on overturning circulation, deep overturning circulation currents. So uh, it's an important show. Uh, it helps our listeners understand uh, really the broad implications of the changes that are happening on the planet, Tyler. So I think it's going to be an interesting discussion today. No question about it, Peter. I got three things. It's a climate change show. It's a climate adaptation show, a blue carbon show, and it's a science show. All three. We're going to get to learn about the planet, too. But first, a word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today are brought to you by Geodynamics, an NV5 company specializing in providing accurate surveys of complex coastal environments worldwide. Driven by marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing, our researchers use the latest technology to provide meticulous data products to support our clients and answer their toughest questions. Geodynamics carefully designs and executes a variety of hydrographic, geophysical, sub-bottom, and near-shore surveys using our fleet of customized vessels and sensor configuration. You can find us at nv5geospatial.com. Geodynamics, delivering solutions, improving lives. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter for our latest updates from around the American shoreline. Like what you're hearing and want to support the network? Sponsorship packages are now available. Go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising to learn more. Well, Professor Moore and uh, E. Liao, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast, and thank you very much for the work that you've done in research and the publication of your study results. Uh, we're thrilled to talk to you about what you have discovered in your recent work. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Let's start with uh, uh, Professor Moore. If you wouldn't mind, could you provide an overview of the work 
that you and Eliao have been doing lately, in particular the uh, work that led to the uh, the study uh, article published in the journal Nature Climate Change in December 2022, uh, the paper entitled Reduced CO2 Uptake and Growing Nutrient Sequestration from Slowing Overturning Circulation, published in uh, January of 20, uh, in December 2022 and reported in Science Daily in January. Give us an overview, if you would. Introduce us to this amazing topic of work that you've been engaged in. Okay, thanks. Well, uh, so in this study, we looked at the output from um, a large number of climate models, 36 different models, and their projections for the future on both low warming all the way to high warming. Uh, we just keep burning up the fossil fuels forever, future scenarios. And what we found is that uh, across these models and across the different warming scenarios, there's a slowdown in the deep ocean circulation. Um, the deep ocean circulation starts at the poles when uh, surface waters get very dense and they sink down into the deep ocean. And then that water circulates through the deep ocean and eventually comes back to the surface, most of it at uh, mid-latitudes in the ocean around Antarctica. And so as that slows down, um, it has a, a couple of important effects. So one is it will slow down the uptake of CO2 from the atmosphere by the oceans. So, you know, currently we emit a lot of CO2 every year from our fossil fuel burning, cars, factories, etc. And each year the oceans are absorbing about a quarter of that. So without that ocean absorption of the CO2, the atmosphere would be warming even quicker. And in the long run, over hundreds of years, we expect the oceans will eventually remove much of that CO2 that we're putting into the atmosphere, uh, you know, 80% or so. But as the deep ocean circulation slows down, that CO2 uptake from the atmosphere also slows down. Um, and so the, the climate will remain hotter and will remain hotter for longer than it would have if the, if the ocean, if the circulation wasn't slowing. Professor Moore, can you give us a little better understanding of why a decline in uh, deep ocean circulation currents uh, would directly uh, implicate the CO2 uptake that the, uh, that the ocean provides? What, what is it about currents and the changes in currents that can reduce the capacity of the ocean to absorb CO2? Mm -hmm. Sure. So, you know, what's happening now is a lot of CO2 is being absorbed at the surface of the ocean. And as we go forward through the next few decades, uh, those surface waters will start to become saturated. They're, they're holding almost all the CO2 they can hold, even though the atmospheric levels are still going higher. And so then the ocean uptake then becomes very dependent on the circulation. You have to bring up older waters that haven't seen the high CO2 atmosphere yet. And then those waters can absorb CO2 from the atmosphere. But if you slow the rate that you're bringing up those old waters, then you're, you're slowing the rate that you're able to take up CO2 from the atmosphere. Man, th that is a fascinating uh, revelation of, of how the water and the atmosphere on planet Earth interchange. Uh, something that I have not given a great deal of thought to yet. Uh, e, I'd love to hear a little bit about what drew you to this area of study? Uh, you are pursuing your PhD. This is one of your principal research works. Uh, what draws you to this this realm of planetary science? Oh yeah, that's a that's a very good question. So from my background, I uh, studied environmental science in my undergrad. So I have some basic background about the environmental science about our Earth, and I did have some uh, very uh, basic knowledge about the oceanography uh, in my undergrad. So I started to become more interested in the ocean topics. Uh, so I decided to do some phys uh, physical oceanography thing in my master's study. But after that, I noticed uh, my focus becomes more 
uh, I mean, like I become more interested in the more big picture thing because I know some basics, I know some theory. So I would like to apply my uh, my background into some big picture topics. That's why I decided to choose to join uh, Keith, uh, Professor Kismore's group at UC Irvine, and especially at this uh, fantastic uh, department of system science, so that I can apply my my knowledge into the uh, the earth science, the big picture thing, especially in the context of climate change. And specifically for this study, uh, when I joined the group, Keith just had a publication in Science talking about the um talking about the 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 climate change could affect the ocean ecosystem functions and could trap the nutrient in the deep ocean. So I followed Keith's um. Uh, paper and I grew interest in why the nutrients can be trapped in the deep ocean under climate warming and how could this um uh, and then like how could the circulation changes affect the climate change the carbon cycle because carbon cycle is the key of the climate change so this motivates me to do some like modeling stuff uh to analyze all the state of art. Uh, our system model outputs to learn some like mechanism thing about the about the yeah the climate change. That's my motivation. Yeah. Very interesting. And one of the things that I I think becomes really clear when you start thinking about Earth system science, so the whole doggone planet, is that we're dealing with a very very you know this is a for a for a little human being. This is a big space. So you, we, we have to use models to wrap our minds around and 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 have some sort of understanding of, of what's going on. Uh, e, did you have a background in in modeling? And what what is it like trying to model a whole earth system? I mean, how how do you approach that? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So um I mean, like for me, even though I'm still a earlier uh, early career scientist, but my whole career uh, my whole career starts from modeling. So I started to learn some modeling stuff uh, from my undergrad, and uh, so I start uh, modeling some like small scale things, like in the coastal regions, and then I learn some basics, some basic physics in the in the modeling stuff. But when I try to apply my knowledge into the uh, into the into the climate science, the Earth system, I notice that I have to learn some modeling about the whole Earth system science, and especially like in uh, if we have a global perspective of the Earth system science, then we have to know some interaction between the ocean, the atmosphere, the land, the biology. So that also motivates me to 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 better know or like analyze these earth system models instead of just like focusing on one specific region. Uh, Professor Moore at the uh, at the Department of Earth System Science at UC Irvine, I would assume that this is part of the research initiatives uh, of the department. can you give us a little bit of an overview of the work at UC Irvine in this department? And if you wouldn't mind, can you speak to the use of models to understand these worldwide complex phenomenons and the level of confidence that you have in, in, in this type of analytical approach? Sure. Well, um, within the department, uh, you know, the department is founded on the philosophy that the Earth is one interconnected system. What happens on land affects the oceans, affects the atmosphere, can affect the ice sheets in longer time scales. Uh, and so within the department, you know, we have a mix of uh, some, like myself, we use the big earth system models and help to develop those. And that's, I spent much of my career helping to develop these models. But then we also have people using satellites to study the earth today at large scales. And we have people who go out and study particular sites in the field in detail, both in the oceans and on land. And so then there's a great potential for collaboration from those people who are actually going to the field. We can compare their results with the models 
and to the extent that the models can match what's happening today in the in the system, uh, we can have more confidence that the models are are working well and more confidence in their projections then for the future. Uh, as as we let as, as CO two continues to rise in the atmosphere, you know we we heard uh, E's re- rationale for wanting to gravitate toward this kind of whole Earth system approach. Uh, but Keith, would you would you walk us through your uh, 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 journey toward this sector of of science? Uh, I imagine, you know, and it, I, I just have to imagine that a lot has changed in Earth system science. You mentioned satellites. I just, I always think about uh, going, you know, humans going to space and kind of looking at the planet as a singular orb out there that kind of psychologically changed us. Um, I'd be, I'd be curious to know, you know, your journey and how the field has changed over your career. Yeah, well, that was a magic moment when we first saw the Earth from space. It is just a tiny blue marble in the midst of vast space. Um, And so I got into this uh, essentially because I was very concerned, as a lot of scientists were becoming concerned in the 1990s, with climate change. And my original training was as an oceanographer. That's what my PhD is in. And a big question for oceanography at that time was, how will the oceans respond to climate change? How will the physics and circulation respond? How will that affect nutrients? How will that affect the biology and the, and the marine ecosystems? And, and, the, and the, the, the problem was we didn't really know the answer to that key question. And so we had to build these models that can capture what's happening today and then allow us to predict what, what could happen in the future. And so I got into this field and, um, you know, since about 2000, I've been working uh, extensively on these earth system models and I've, I've written much of the computer code in a couple of the models that that simulates the cycling of carbon in the oceans and the biology in the oceans and then the different ways that can feed back onto climate change and the most important one is the biology can affect how much co2 the oceans are absorbing from the atmosphere so we wanted to get that if that uh, process that mechanism into the models and so we've we've done that now, and um, and the models are, are pretty well developed in terms of capturing things like the the global distributions of phytoplankton and photosynthesis in the oceans. It's it, it it's a technical subject, but yeah, I wonder. Uh, according to the the paper published in Nature, climate change in December of 2022, the results of your your collaborative effort with uh, Professor Moore uh, that you looked at. Uh, 36 climate models or 36 climate model runs uh, and found that the Atlantic meridional overturning circulation and the Southern meridional overturning circulation, two incredibly important uh, currents in the ocean system, um, may slow as much as 42% by 2100. Um, And it under the worst case scenario analysis, uh, where we take no action to to reduce uh, CO two emissions and greenhouse gas uh, emissions, uh, that the southern meridional overturning circulation could entirely cease by the year twenty three hundred. That's a rather frightening finding. Talk to us a little bit about what the results of your analysis uh, with regard to climate circulation. Uh, I mean, currents, ocean current circulation. So in terms of our paper, we, like you just mentioned, we focus on both the upper cell uh, overturning circulation, which is known as Atlantic Meridian overturning circulation. And also we focus on the abyssal cell of overturning circulation. It's called Southern Ocean Driven Meridian overturning circulation. So we focus on these two largest scale uh, circulation system in the ocean and trying to understand how this circulation system changes could affect the ocean carbon cycle. So um, for the overturning circulation part, we first uh, quantify the strength of the overturning circulation for both two cells. And we can see that um, under different warming scenarios, no matter which warming scenarios we are focusing on, we can both, we can all see the slowdown of the overturning circulation. 
both for the upper cell AMOC, we call it AMOC, and for the abyssal cell, SMOC. But under more mod, uh, under more um, like business as usual warming scenario, which means people do not do anything to 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 mitigate the climate, we see the strongest slowdown of overturning circulation. Especially if you focus on the AMOC, like uh, once we extend our study into year 2300, that means after 300 years, after 300 years, we can see there is only a very small portion of the AMOC still left in the ocean. But if we focus on the ice mark, the, uh, the abyssal cell of overturning circulation, we can see it's complete, it's a complete, it's a complete shutdown till the year 2300. But if people can do something to mitigate the climate warming, that means once we are focusing on the more moderate warming scenarios, then the slowdown of overturning circulation could be also mitigated. So we see there are less slowdown of overturning circulation if people trying to mitigate the climate warming. That's our key uh, findings of this study in terms of the circulation, yeah. Professor Moore, has have there been any, uh, you talked about the collaborative uh, work that you do within the department with the field scientists and the field researchers in addition to the work and in the modeling sphere. Um, have there been any detectable changes in these important overturning circulation currents so far, or is it simply a matter of a projection right now that could occur uh, if we are uh, unable to take uh, effective action on climate change issues? Uh, great question. In fact, there have been several studies in recent years that have shown that that the upper cell, the one in the Atlantic, AMOC, uh, has started to slow down and is slowing and is at the maybe the slowest it's been in the last thousand years, one study argued. So it seems like we are you know, seeing this starting to happen with the upper cell. In the model projections, the lower cell um, starts to slow a little later. So we wouldn't expect to see that yet, but um, we're, we're confident that it, it will happen. Um, it's a similar thing with the sea ice. The sea ice in the Arctic has been you know, declining dramatically during summer months in the last few decades. And um, we haven't seen the big change in, in Antarctic sea ice yet, but again, in the models, that, that tends to lag what happens in the Arctic. So we wouldn't expect to see the signal yet. Just a quick follow-up. Um, in, in, in reviewing the uh, article, the summary in Science Daily, which was an excellent uh, introduction to this topic for us at, uh, at, at the American Trollhound podcast, um, there was something that caught my eye and and uh, prompted us to reach out to you to discuss it more more seriously. But I liked this. Uh, I'm going to quote you as it's quoted in the Science Daily article because I think it was the thing that kind of brought it into focus for me. Uh, you concluded that a disruption in circulation would reduce the ocean uptake of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, intensifying and extending hot climate conditions, and that over time, the nutrients that support marine ecosystems would increasingly become trapped in the deep ocean, leading to a decline in global ocean biological productivity. I just think that kind of wraps it, wraps it up. Can you elaborate on uh, this summary of your findings? I know we've kind of touched on that, but this is, seems to me to be the, the, the implication of, of significance in the research. Yeah, so we haven't touched on the nutrient part yet. So let's let's talk about that a little. So everywhere, in, you know, most most of the life in the oceans is near the surface, where there's enough light for photosynthesis, and the the tiny ocean plants, the phytoplankton, can can do their thing and grow. Uh, but some, and so, but there's also everywhere in the oceans, there's dead and dying organisms sinking down into the deeper ocean from those surface waters. And as that stuff is sinking, it's decomposing. And so it's releasing the carbon and nitrogen and phosphorus uh, at depth. And some of it makes it all the way to the deep ocean and releases the nutrients there. And so, you, you know, if, 
so in that sense, the biology is always depleting the nutrients at the surface of the ocean through this, this export of sinking organic material. And in today's ocean, um, that's not really a problem because the circulation eventually brings those nutrients back up to the surface where they can be used again by the marine ecosystems. But as you, if you, as you slow down that deep circulation, uh, what happens is the nutrients, you start to see higher nutrient concentrations in the deep ocean. They start to build up and you start to deplete the nutrients in the upper ocean that support, you know, marine ecosystems worldwide. And so... In the, in the earlier study, we estimated that the total um, primary production in the oceans, the total photosynthesis, could decline as much as 25% by year 2300. That was looking at one particular model's estimate. And, you know, and regionally, the effects could be even more drastic than that. So in the, in the North Atlantic, the production and also the potential fish catch, we estimated, would decline by more than 50%. So, and, and, this, and this transfer of nutrients to the deep ocean, sort of the more the circulation slows, the more rapid that transfer to the deep ocean will be. And it will really be extreme if the deep ocean circulation were to shut off completely as we, as we see happening in these models. This is probably an overly simplified way of looking at it. I have a tendency to do that. But uh, it's almost as though there's a certain amount of carrying capacity that these cells have be it nutrients or CO2 in this case. And that if we fill all of that water, that column, that, that water on the surface with CO2, it, it exhausts itself and it kind of, the, the cell stops. And this brings up a question in my mind, because you know you guys are modeling, so you can do anything, I guess. You can put... Can you actually reverse? Is it possible to reverse the the these cells? Reverse these currents? You mean to somehow speed them up again? Yeah, or or, or actually like go so negative, the atmosphere gets so hot that the circulation reverses. I don't know. I'm just thinking. I'm just thinking out of the box. I guess. No, probably the hotter it gets, the more the circulation will slow down. So this this deep circulation is driven by sort of cold and salty, dense water sinking in the polar regions. But what happens is, as those water is, you know, even the polar regions start to get warmer and warmer at the surface, eventually that water, it doesn't get deep, it, it, it cools off in the winter, but it doesn't cool off as much, and it's not as salty because there's a lot of fresh water coming into the oceans from the ice sheets on Greenland and Antarctica. And so... Um, in the future, that warmer water, it doesn't get dense enough to sink all the way to the deep ocean. And that's really what's, what's driving the change in circulation is the warming and the melting of the ice that, that comes as a result of the high CO2 in the atmosphere. Okay, quick follow-up, quick, quick follow-up, uh, Professor. So when that uh, surface water goes down deep in this natural kind of cold water cell action, that you're describing. I guess we're going to call this deep circulation cells is my understanding. Um, when it, when this new water gets down there, it's going to displace the water that was down there, right? Is that, is that what's happening and push it up? It, it, it pushes in along and eventually it comes back up somewhere else. Yes. Uh, e, would you talk a little bit about, uh, uh, I'm interested in the, in the biological implications of the work that it's both a, as, uh, Professor Moore mentioned it uh, could reduce the uh, nutrient uh, availability in the upper uh, water system as, as the current returns to the surface. Uh, we're all familiar, I think, generally with these, with these wonderfully productive fishery areas around the world that are associated with upwelling systems where the nutrients are brought forward and uh, result in exploded phytoplankton blooms and the whole a cascade of environmental and ecological benefits that come come from that. Uh, when you looked at the uh, implications and the potential reduction uh, in in fisheries production, can can you share some of your insights uh, or what you learned about that particular risk uh, of of the situation you're studying? 
so for this study, uh, I, I, as we mentioned in, in this paper, we see the slowing overturning circulation will reduce the nutrient availability to the upper ocean, so uh, which will reduce the biological productivity, especially for the phytoplankton, which is the basis of the ocean tropical levels. So the reduction of the phytoplankton biomass or the reduction of the biological productivity in the uh, um in the I mean like at the at the basic tropic level, this will harm the uh, uh the yields of the fisheries because the fishery is at the higher tropic level of the ocean marine ecosystem. So once we uh once the overturning circulation is um trying to reduce the base uh trying to reduce the first the the very basic level of the uh I mean like to reduce the biological productivity of the uh phytoplankton. Uh so this will like along the along the food web this will finally um harm the yield of the fishery. That's my that's my insight. But also I have to agree uh, I have to admit that uh there should be lots of more actual studies focusing on the yield of the fisheries uh to have like more uh quantitative um analysis of the specific impacts on the fisheries. But for our study and also combined with uh Professor Kismore's uh science paper in 2018, we um we pretty agree that the fisheries will go down due to the uh due to the slowdown uh due sorry due to the nutrient availability provided to the phytoplankton along the food web. Uh, Professor Moore, this this sounds can, can sound alarming. We're talking about 28 to 42% slowdown in these significant uh, ocean currents. Um, we're talking about the potential uh, worst case scenario that these circulations could potentially halt. Um, and in a lot of climate discussions these days, uh, the the world can it could be described in 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 terms of, of with great alarm. Uh, but it sounds like in 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 your analysis, uh, there is reason to believe that this is an avoidable consequence of our actions. Can you speak about what you what you uh, believe the study uh, teaches us about what we can do to avoid these kinds of uh, Sounds like astonishingly uh, frightening outcomes. So yes, it, it, you know well, what we found and clearly showed in the paper is that the more it warms, the more this deep ocean circulation slows down. So and and the complete shutdown of the deepest cell only occurred on the high end warming, the the path where we just burn up all the fossil fuels we have available to us which results you know, in a, just a tremendous global warming over the next couple of hundred years. Uh, so you know, atmospheric CO2 concentrations now are about at 400 parts per million, but if we burn up all the fossil fuels available to us, that could rise to 2,000 parts per million. Surface air temperatures, in that case, warm by um, up to 10 degrees, you know, so 10 times the warming we've seen up to this point, which is about one degree of warming. It already feels like the climate system's kind of going nuts with just one degree of warming in terms of increased fires and flooding, etc. You know, at 10 degrees of warming, it's, it's, a, it's hard for us to even imagine that, even looking at the output from these Earth system models. It's such a different planet. For example, there's no, there's no sea ice left in the Arctic. Even in the winter, the Arctic Ocean does not freeze over in the, at 2300 if we go this high-end route. Uh, but the good news is, you know, the circulation slows, but it doesn't shut down if we work hard to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions over the next one to two decades. And we still have time to do that. Um, so, you know, really this study is, is just another call for doing what we all kind of know we need to do, which is kick our fossil fuel habit as, as quickly as possible. A kick in the pants. And then we can avoid the, the worst, yes, we can avoid the worst, uh, uh, the worst consequences of this, this really catastrophic global warming we could see if we don't act now. 
And it's really critical that we act now. We're, we're, you know, there's still time, but we're fast running out of time. And what happens over the next 20 years could set the climate trajectory for the next thousand years. And if we, you know, overshoot and warm too much, it will be really hard to, to try to get the planet back to where it was. So we just need to not cross those, those tipping points that sort of lock in more warming by cutting back the emissions now as, as quickly as we can. E, I'd love to get your, I mean, this is, this is a heavy material here. Uh, a, a stern warning uh, that if we don't uh, collectively as, as humans on planet earth, we're a part of the, we're a part of that earth system. Uh, if we don't, make some changes, big changes in our energy, we are cruising for a bruising. Uh, e, what, what are your, what's the talk like with your, uh, with your friends and fellow scientists over there at UC Irvine? Are you, are you shouting it from the mountaintops? Uh, yeah. Um, at least I feel like around, uh, around me, um, like the, all the early career scientists and also uh, my cohorts, my other, I mean, like the other graduate students in, in UC Irvine or in our department, we talk a lot about the warning of the, of the climate warming and also, um, also like we, uh, most people agree that, uh, if people do not, uh, do anything to mitigate the climate warming, then at some point, there must be uh, serious uh, consequences by crossing some uh, some important climate tipping points, and this would cause uh, our Earth to um, how to say to to become uh, becomes warmer and becomes more horrible. But it's like once we cross some uh, important tipping points, such as the uh, overturn circulation fully shut down or the other important climate climatic tipping points, then the climate warming will be in, uh, irre- uh, irreversible. Well, and I also, I just got a, Peter, got a direct, uh, a bit of a question toward you, uh, because uh, as we discussed a couple weeks ago on our 2023 kickoff show, uh, you are engaged in uh, VESTA, which is a, a, a firm that is attempting to uh, fight climate change using enhanced weathering techniques using the mineral olivine. Yes, yes. And I imagine uh, in your very science-based, you know, Vesta is a science-oriented company, as you as you said. Is is are these uh, circulation currents and the this the kind of mechanics of ocean sequestration? Are these things that? Uh, you guys discuss regularly over there at Vesta, and do, do you do you find that this research has any implications for your work? You know, I think for for all the organizations, uh, either governmental and non governmental, and in the public and the private sector, uh, that are examining the climate change challenge, uh, understanding the Earth system in the broadest scale is absolutely the foundation of. Uh, the efforts to, to tackle the problem, uh, regardless of the solution. Uh, our particular approach at Vesta, using an, an ocean-enhanced alkal- uh, alkalinity enhancement, is is really uh, uh, tied to the kind of thinking that's involved in this study. The capacity of the ocean to absorb CO2, the acidification of the ocean, uh, and these changes in uh, in the in in the currents uh, implicate. Uh, the work that we are trying to do. We're not out of scale at this point in our discussions as a company uh, that we're talking about uh, operating in, in the mid-ocean or on a scale that these uh, these studies uh, bring into focus. Um, so it, it is something I'm very curious about learning and better understanding. Uh, and uh, I, I do think, uh, you know, the work at, at UC Irvine and, and other institutions is absolutely essential that we we understand the earth systems as best that we can um and it, it really turns thank you for asking that tyler but um in professor moore i was uh in in the study in the 36 uh, climate models you ran it sounded like 
the worst case scenario is truly the worst case where the where the atmospheric uh, CO2 levels would go from somewhere in the low 400s to over 2,000 parts per million, a massive, massive increase if we burned all of the available fossil fuels that are that are around on the planet. Um, are there significant implications, though, uh, if you look at, for example, the climate projection trends from the uh, International Panel on Climate Change Studies, the IPCC reports, did you model... Um, for example, the the uh, the climate scenarios that have been described as more likely uh, in the IPCC report. Yes, yeah, so we did. So this study is looking at the the same Earth system models that that go into informing the IPCC report, and so we're looking at the the sixth round of those model simulations, the latest one. And we, we did look at a range of climate scenarios. So sort of a high, medium, and low, where the low warming uh, is consistent with the Paris Climate Treaty goals of, of trying to keep warming to 1.5 degrees or less. And we looked at a, sort of a middle range climate scenario also that, that stabilizes by the end of the century, but with uh, more like three or four degrees of warming. And then we also looked at the most extreme high-end case uh, where we continue to burn the fossil fuels. And, um, and so there was slowing even on the most moderate warming, but there was less slowing of the circulation with the, with the moderate warming case. So we did look at a, a range of potential future climate scenarios in this study. In, in, the mid, in, the, in the low to mid scenarios in the IPCC report in the sixth update that was recently released, um, E, did you see... Uh, you know, changes in biological productivity. Did the model show biological implications at the low and mid projections in the IPCC report? Yes. So um, under the low uh, warming scenarios, we also see there is a negative effect to the uh, biological productivity from the slowing overturning circulation. So the thing here is, uh, once we have like more moderate warming scenarios, then we have less slowdown of overturning circulation, but we still have a negative effect on the biological productivity. But we need to know that under the uh, low emission scenario, then we have like a less uh, less decline of biological productivity. So there is pretty uh, promising at some point if people can per, uh, perturb the, uh, or if people can mitigate the climate warming, we might still have the slowdown of overturning circulation. But the thing is we do have less negative effects on the biological productivity. Yes. Uh, Keith, uh where do we go from here? Uh, I, I, very impressive paper. I'm, I'm always blown away at how advanced our modeling has become. The fact that we can even uh, contemplate, calculate, make some sort of educated uh, estimate as to the way the oceans might be 300 years from now is uh, amazing. Uh, but but what where are some holes would you say in this kind of analysis and and where do you see earth system models uh, going into the future? Yeah, well, I think you know one of the problems is we're not running these models out long enough and and exploring sort of that future space as much as we should. Most of the climate simulations for the IPCC um, still stop at year twenty one hundred. And so, but there was a subset that extended that to 2300, and we looked at, at, at all of them in this study. Uh, but we need more models to, to run out longer, but even past 2300 to 2500 and beyond. Because the, the big questions we really want to know, uh, you know, come down to will the circulation, ocean circulation shut down, harming marine ecosystems globally? Will the big ice sheets melt to the ground and, and flood every coastal city on the planet? But, but those are both longer-term processes. We won't, that won't happen by 2100. It'll take hundreds of years for the ice sheets to melt. But we still need to know if they're going to melt because the consequences would be so disastrous for the um, future Earth. And, and one of the 
One of the things that could be improved in the models now is the interactions between the oceans and the big ice sheets on Greenland and Antarctica. And there's a lot of work going into that now um, to try to better capture those interactions. So, you know, as the big glaciers come off of Antarctica, you get these ice sheets that extend out over the ocean. And we've seen a number of those break up in recent years, um, mainly due to ocean warming. The warming is you know, the ocean is warming under that ice sheet and it, it breaks up and drifts and the ice drifts off as icebergs. When that happens, the glacial flow off of the continent speeds up greatly. It seems those ice sheets kind of act as a dam to hold back the flow. And so, um, so we need to, you know, improve the model's ability to capture those ice sheet ocean interactions because that'll really be key to the long-term, um, climate and the long-term stability of the ice sheets. But then the ice sheets also influence the ocean because they're putting in a lot of fresh, um, low-density water in these polar regions where we want the dense water to form and sink. So there's a, there's a connection there that we need to explore more with these models and on longer time scales. Yeah, not a feedback loop. We're, we're looking to uh, empower <laughs> the loss of these these glaciers and, and uh, ice sheets. Uh, Professor Moore, I, climate change is controversial. Uh, I don't think that the, the number of people uh, who deny the existence of climate change and the relationship to uh, human activities is, is growing. I think that's long declining. And I think that the scientific consensus seems clear that we've put ourselves in a position uh, humanity has uh, of some peril uh, with the actions that we're taking. Um, when you start talking about uh, models that are going to go beyond 100, 200, 300 years, uh, talk to us a little bit and help our listeners understand the state of the science and the state of the modeling capacity and what's happening in the discussion uh, in the research science community about the capacity of models to make meaningful projections that far into the future? Where are we, not, where are we on, that, uh, on that confidence level in this kind of analytical tool? Well, you know, in terms of the functioning of the natural systems, ocean circulation, the biology in the ocean, these models have gotten fairly sophisticated. And they can capture pretty well the, you know, the, the patterns we see in the oceans today and also some of the changes we've seen with the, with the warming we've already had. So that gives some confidence for the future. But you know, when you look at the longer time scales, one of the biggest wild cards is what will the humans do <laughs> with our future emissions? How quickly will they cut? And that, you know, we, that's the big uncertainty. And so that's why we look at a whole range of climate scenarios that basically cover the possible spread um, based on, on humanity's decisions. But we're, we are the big unknown, I think, um, in what, what we do, how our population grows, how our energy use changes. Um, and, and so, and you know, there's other scientists who are working on trying to project that, but it's a, it's a difficult problem. I would say more difficult than changing ocean circulation. <laughs> <laughs> we always say that climate change is a, a human problem. It's not a science problem. It's not a physics problem. The physics is just doing what the physics does. It's the humans that are that are driving this. Uh, it's an Anthropocene event here. Um, e, uh, I got to know what's next for you. you. You're wrapping up your PhD. Uh Obviously, Peter and I are extremely impressed by this paper. And uh, what 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 does the future hold for you? What would you like to work on when you're all done with your PhD? Yes. So um, as I'm approaching to to finish my PhD, I'm still um, very interested in this uh, kind of like ocean carbon cycle topics, especially in the context of climate change. So I'm uh, still looking for uh, doing uh, this kind of similar topics, especially on better quantification of the global ocean carbon cycle and to better constrain the global, uh, uh, better constrain the global carbon cycle, which can provide some scientific basis to the whole climate change community. 
So uh, for me in the future, I'm still looking. Uh, I'm uh, looking for a postdoc job, which can support me to do this kind of like quanti- uh, this kind of uh, um, carbon cycle studies to to better understand what's going on in the climate change and what our scientists can do to provide better uh, information to the to to the whole community. So um yeah so hopefully I can uh still focusing uh still focus on this uh carbon cycle topics and based on what I have learned from my PhD study to better uh to better um proceed uh some um carbon cycle science uh science um for this for this community yeah well, we, we wish you uh, great luck in the future. Um, the work that you're doing and Professor Moore continue to do at uh, UC Irvine uh, is absolutely essential. All of the research scientists around the world who are focusing their uh, attention and skill and talent on this challenge uh, is so important. So we wish you the very best, E, in the completion of your PhD and your next steps. Uh Professor Moore, if you wouldn't mind, if our if our listeners would like to learn more about your work and your work with Elio, uh, could you uh, provide uh, some information as to how people can follow along with the efforts that you're taking? Um, well, you know, I think one of the best sources of information is those IPCC reports that come out. They really integrate, you know, from thousands of scientists in their work across the the planet and those reports are written by the working scientists like you know a lot of them are university scientists like myself uh, you also have government scientists working for NASA the National Science Foundation things like that but that document is written uh, by the scientists um, based on the science and so I would say that is the, the best source of information for people Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, from the University of California, Irvine, Department of Earth System Science. It is PhD candidate E. Liao and Professor Keith Moore. Uh, They and other researchers collaborated on an important uh, paper on deep ocean circulation implications for climate. Uh, Professor Moore, uh, E. Liao, thank you so much for joining us today on the American Shoreline podcast. And and helping our listeners understand this very important work that you're doing. We really appreciate it. Winds gonna blow to